0: I don't think structurally in the company we were prepared for that. And that would actually be my biggest advice to founders. Like, how is your time going to be compensated?
1: Hello and welcome to The Big Exit Show, the podcast by P-Capital, where we talk to successful European tech founders about the exit of their companies and the path to how they got there. My name is Remy Gieling and all the way in Berlin is my beloved co-host Johan van founder and managing partner of P-Capital. Johan, what was the trip like for you? It was great. Great traveling again in uh, post-COVID times. In this episode, we talk to Emma Tracy. After a career in journalism and PR, she founded Honeypot in two 2015 which quickly grew to become one of the leading developer-focused job platforms in Europe. Honeypot was sold in 2019 to the publicly listed social network Sing. At the time of the exit the company had over 50 employees and over 1,200 clients like Katawiki Media, Monks, and WeTransfer throughout Europe and we will learn from Emma about scaling the company but also about making a dream exit at the right time. Emma, so good to have you with us here today.
0: Hi, guys. Thanks a million for having me. So,
1: Emma, what's the what's the heroic
2: story of Honeypot?
0: Well, the funny thing is I'm Irish, and, you know, that, um, self-deprecation, I think, is kind of a national characteristic. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> um, so the heroic story is always, like, um, a bit of a difficult one for me to, to go into. Um, what is the heroic story? So, I mean, everything about Honeypot was focused on developers from the start, and I think Kai and myself were so, so interested in... The perspective of developers and the whole job hunt. Um, I think, like in difference, maybe to other competitors we had at the time, the focus for them was very much on um, on the recruiter and what the recruiter was thinking in the in the whole job hunt. Um, so from the time we started, we were we really wanted to build something which was really really strongly candidate driven, very strongly focused on the developers themselves. Um, and so we began building in 2015. Um, I think we launched in October 2015. Um, got a lot of press actually at that time. It meant as well we didn't have to start any paid marketing for the first nine nine to ten months, yeah, right. yeah. which was which was wonderful. Yeah. Um, uh, so that was 2015. Um, heroic story would be we worked extremely hard for, for <laughs> four and a half years and we sold in 2019 to Sing.
2: Hey, and <laughs> so that's a heroic story indeed. What, what, what if I read about you in the press and you know the, all the podcasts that you did and, and articles which were written on you, we read it everywhere. And what is the real story? Of only
0: um Well, a lot of a lot of work. Yeah, a lot of really really hard work. So, um, I mean, there were definitely times when um, it was extremely challenging. You know, mm. we we had to lay people off. Um, we had to kind of keep going and and push with the th- team through. Um, we made bad business decisions along the way. <laughs> we made we had hypotheses which weren't proven to be true. Mm-hmm. And um, so just, I think, a lot of perseverance, grit, um, a lot of commitment from the team. Um, I think that's probably the real story.
1: Yeah, we always start with the origin story, the beginning. What was the problem that you were trying to solve with Honeypot?
0: Yeah, I think the problem which was really interesting to us was this problem from the developer's perspective of... The fact that as a developer, you know, you have all of this choice, but somehow it's very intangible to you. Um, So you know, what I always say is it's like winning the lottery, but winning it in the wrong currency for the specific country in which you're living. Um, So imagine having all of this potential choice, but not being able to realize it. Um, And this was the problem we were really interested in. How do we make the job hunt easier, more transparent and more candidate driven for, for software developers?
2: And you, and you you so you turned the market around, right? Make it make it not demand-driven but supply-driven, right? Focused toward developers. A lot of companies tried it in those days, right? In different areas. What's the reason why you succeeded and, and a lot of your competitors didn't?
0: Yeah, I, I think it really is for that um, genuine approach towards the candidate, because um, if you looked at our competitors at that time, I think their focus actually really was on trying to solve this problem from the perspective of the recruiter or from the respective, perspective of the company. Whereas everything we did was very much focused on the candidate, mm-hmm. which is why if you look at Honeypot now, we have so many things. Um, we have open source um, documentaries, we have events, we have everything possible for, for developers. Um, and I think that kind of authenticity um, meant that we, from day one, had no issues when it came to supply of developers on the platform. Mm-hmm. And you know, when you have supply, I think demand naturally follows.
1: Now you have a rich history career-wise. You went into journalism, went into PR, even worked in a laundrette in your teenage years. How did you find out about this problem that was all around in the this wonderful world, but in the world of developers.
0: Yeah, well, it was, it was super interesting actually because um, I, as you kind of said, I, I come from a background of journalism and PR, and um, my whole career up until that point was in emerging economies, so Colombia, South Africa, West Africa. Um, and I came back to Europe, to Berlin, um, after, you know, five years of living outside. My mum was very, very happy. <laughs> um, but I came knowing that I came from a very different background from a typical tech founder. And I knew that I wanted to start something digital, but I also knew that I needed experience first. And so I actually joined Honeypot um, as, uh, along with, um, as one of the first employees, so as the first marketing employee. Um, knowing that Kaya, my co-founder, was a really successful um, entrepreneur himself and mm-hmm. that it would be a great time for me to, you know, spend a year with him before going on to my own my own thing. And so the company at that time didn't have... Um, didn't have a a name or a brand, hadn't launched, didn't have a product, anything like that. Um, But Kaya, from his previous experiences, knew this challenge of finding developers from the recruiter's perspective. Mm -hmm. So as I started to, or as we started to kind of dig into the the problem, we realized actually it was so much more pertinent or so much more um, emotive almost on the developer side than it was on the recruiter side. And this is when we realized actually this is the perspective we need to be taking. This is where our brand needs to go. Um, and so that's when we really realized and decided to focus our attention on the developers instead of the recruiters.
1: You've been in Berlin for quite some years. What makes Berlin such an attractive city for you, but also for entrepreneurs, you reckon?
0: Yeah, I well, in a, in a personal sense, I think it's the perfect combination of a city which is full of culture, full of history. If you like techno music, it's probably the only place you need to be. <laughs> and, and then like professionally, I think, um, It's just full of creative people, um, full of opportunities. Um, It's cheap, still cheap comparatively, to start a business here. and people just want to be here, you know, um, because of the great city that it is. So I think it's still really an exciting place to be.
2: So, so what will be your next stop then after this uh, great travel around the world and uh, being in Berlin?
0: My next stop? Yeah. Ooh, good question. Um, Amsterdam! Say Amsterdam! <laughs> <laughs> oh, I love Amsterdam. You know, that was our f- that was the first uh, city we set up in outside of yeah, Germany. Really. So we're definitely massive fans of Amsterdam, would love to live there. Um, I mean, I would love to live in Mexico City. I think it's really exciting. Um, It's a really exciting place to be, and I think the whole startup um, ecosystem in Latin America in general is is developing in a great direction. Um, So that would be something I would consider. I would also consider moving back to Colombia at some stage. But like I, said, at, like I said at the start, my poor mum, you know, she probably does want me back in Dublin at some yeah. stage. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
1: Now, uh, back to, the, to, to the, uh, the first years of, of Honeypot. How, how did you find your first client?
0: The first clients came definitely through Kaya's network. So my, my co-founder, who had previously been involved with HitFox um, and had previously founded a company called Uplift here, um, so a lot of that came through through network actually at the start, um, and then I think from there we began to partner with larger tech companies by hosting events. So we partnered with companies like Zalando, for example, and we hosted um, events which were very much focused on how to um, run HR for tech companies, um, and they proved to be really popular. I think we also had not just a fun, not just an interesting event, but a kind of fun post-drinks <laughs> element. Maybe that's the Irish inspiration. Okay. (laughs) um so we started kind of build up um traction i think a lot through those events as well
2: and with the marketplace it's always the chicken and the egg problem right and i think in this case you have a very clear target audience from the moment you went live right right and you had the idea about, about about creating the honeypot more or less what was your first event which really brought traction to your platform in terms of supply or demand
0: so physical event, definitely that, um, that event with Solando, which I think had over 150 or something like that, tech recruiters, which were all primarily our audience. I think in terms of, um, you know, a, a marketing moment, which was really um, huge for us, it was definitely the, the launch, mm-hmm. pure, um, And when we got into TechCrunch and VentureBeat and Grundesena and all of the kind of big tech press. Um, which that was an insane moment because you know we were suddenly getting hundreds of um, signups. and yeah. you know, eight
2: hundred in a week. I recall yeah. right. Yeah, and our,
0: our team kind of me and Kai actually were in Poland at the time, uh, kind of launching the company um, at a tech event, and the team back in Berlin, you know, were really scrambling to try to figure out how do we actually process this many developers, how do we all get them through the funnel. Um, but it was a great time. You know, it's a great problem to have like an oversupply. <laughs> um, so that was good.
1: Now let's move on to the growth phase. When was the first time you really felt that you were gaining traction, that you had a product market fit, as we call it?
0: The the first initial... Um, thought that, okay, this is something that actually is going to mean something, was really when we got that first uh, influx of developers, you know. Um, Just this, and then we, because every developer who was coming onto Honeypot at that time had to do a personal interview with one of our team, um, and just feeling this kind of, like, sense of, this is actually needed. The developers telling us, okay, finally someone's, like, listening to us, what we want, LinkedIn doesn't work for us. Um, no, nothing that's available really works for us at the moment. So that was kind of the first feeling of, okay, this could definitely be something. Um, and then we did actually start making our first money quite quickly. Um,
2: You're profitable from year one and a half, right? I read, yeah.
0: And so, I mean, but then there were like bumps along the way. So there was one stage where um, we had to let go, I think it was three people. And this was only when we were, you know, at, 20 person mm. team because we were living month to month from our revenues because yeah. we had only taken like small family and friends around. Um, and it, we kind of said to each other, okay, like six months, we need to like really prove this in six months. And if we don't, we really need to question if we, if this is the right thing. Um, and so those six months, the team and and us, we just worked really fucking hard. And I'm so grateful to those early employees. Um, we just worked so hard and, and we reached profitability, um, And um, a few months after that, then, um, I was at this event um, run by the family um, Mm -hmm. here in Berlin. Mm -hmm. And it was about, um, it was from Delivery Hero and it was about how to kind of streamline your operations, how to scale a a business. And the, the guy who was talking said, you know, at some stage you need to look at your recruitment process and think about optimizing at different stages and for different types of talents you want to attract. And he said, you should really look at tools like Honeypot.
3: Wow! And you know, that
0: was, I was like, oh wow. For the first time I, re- I was kind of less insular and suddenly there was someone, you know, who I respected on stage and, and things and like that. And you were that. in the audience. And I was in the audience, wow. yeah. Um, and so the next day I wrote to him and said, hey, would you like to chat? Like, i um, curious about your experience. Um, and that was Felix Plogg, and he ended up becoming an, uh, an angel investor for us. Your first angel. I and our first angel, yeah. Um, and that was like a then suddenly like this great feeling because he had already obviously seen quite a lot of different startups and he had massive belief in us and things like that and mm-hmm. and I think those those kind of moments were the real milestone moments where I felt like okay we're actually doing something here.
2: I read about your you 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 mentioned a really uh, funny word the, the fetish fetishization of venture capital right and you mm-hmm. you you you're. Uh, you were not really positive about taking on venture capital, right? Also given the experience with uh, the shoe salesman, more, say, <laughs> more or less. What What was the reason for you for that, to be less positive on that? What was your experience also and your thinking behind it?
0: You know, I was also very new to the whole... Um to the whole startup world, to the how digital businesses are, are built and grown. You know, it was my first um, experience in tech at all. Um, and then I was a founder of this tech company, so I was very much learning as I was going. Of course, Kaya had much more experience. Um, I think that generally, like, there, you know, we did at one stage go out into the market um, mm-hmm. to look for VC and didn't get that much traction around it.
2: And it was before Delivery Hero invested, right? Okay, yeah, for yeah. that,
0: yeah, um, and it was such a, a draining experience, to be yeah. honest. Um, like quite intimidating um, and and a little bit draining um, as well. I think if you talk to most founders, and you know yourself yeah. as a as a former founder, the whole um, fundraising time is hard and it it's is challenging, hard. and it pulls you away from the business and things like that. Mm-hmm. And I think then it was just, that was part of that momentum to say, let's just focus on what we're doing and mm-hmm. let's make this work and let's get it to a point where it's kind of irresistible to to, to VCs or to whatever comes. Create
2: also your honeypot in that respect, right? Yeah, That's, exactly. Uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> what, what, what can you advise VCs like P Capital but also other VCs, right, to do better in that respect, also to learn from you?
0: Oh, interesting question. Um, I think one one interesting thing, which um, perhaps you guys do already, is to um, actually ask, uh, like, go to the founders instead of asking the founders to come mm-hmm. to you mm-hmm. um, to to let them be kind of on their home ground. I think maybe mm-hmm. when when having the discussions, but again, I mean, I, I I'm not I don't want to be overcritical of, of VCs, no. and I think it's super important, of course. And I've I, I have changed my perspective quite a bit from those earlier experiences. Um, but being a, a first-time founder, non nah, non-tech leader. person, yeah. it was it was a, a slightly intimidating experience.
2: exit phase. Um, what was the first time you discussed with Kaya the potential exit of the company? So really the first time that you thought perhaps we should sell it.
0: I mean this was this was such a surprise to us I think. Um, so uh, as I was saying earlier we kind of decided you know we'd reached that point where we felt we had a very we were in a very good position to raise money essentially mm-hmm. and so we were going out in the market and um, And coincidentally at that time, um, we got approached by the VP of corporate development from Tsing. Mm -hmm. um, And he had said that they were really interested in kind of this tech market in general um, and that they had actually asked their internal recruiters, which product do you like using the most Um, of the marketplaces which were available at the time? And they had said honeypot. So he decided to talk to us. And um, at first, you know, Kai and I, when 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 he approached, we're, we, we we were just thinking, okay, well, like let's talk to them. It's interesting. Maybe we'll learn something.
2: But did, did, did he just send an email or call? To I think yeah, email, yeah. yeah.
0: Email. Um, and yeah, kind of didn't thought like okay, it probably won't materialize into anything, but we will potentially learn something as well from them. Um, and then it kind of just started to like snowball a bit. Um, also in your mind, right? <laughs> yeah, also yeah. in our minds. Um, and so I, I can't honestly remember the exact point in time um, when this became real, but I do remember at our um, Christmas party in 2018 mm-hmm. and um, we had been kind of like, you know, having very intense discussions with them up to that point and, and things like that. Um, and I think Kaya or some something was making a speech at the Christmas party and I just had one of those moments, you know, where you're at dinner and you kind of phase out for a second and I was like... Maybe next year is going to be very yeah, different, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and maybe that was the first time in my mind that I was really like, okay, this is this is a reality now.
2: Hey, and, and how was that 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 first talk with uh, in this case Xing, right? So they send you an email. And you replied and you probably scheduled a meeting, right? Where did you meet and how did it went? That Especially that first moment, right? Because you were not in the phase at that time of selling the company. And these were these guys were interested in buying your company, but you are at that time not yet. How did it yeah. went, that talk?
0: Um, so the first few talks were just quite informal, I think, mostly between Kaya and Dennis, our counterpart um, at Singh. And then the first kind of formal meeting, um, we got the train up to Hamburg and then met um, also someone from their product team, someone from their finance team, Dennis, and um, maybe someone from their sales team. Um, And it was just great, actually. It just felt like it clicked, you know, from the start. Um, And this is always something that I reflect on now. It's like, you know, this idea of whoever your, you know, VC partner is or exit partner, there has to be that feeling of like a click, and it's I'm sure it's Most, exact same yeah, from your perspective, degrees, yeah. <laughs> um, because these, these are the people who are going to shape your your company and the your you know your baby in the future. Um, especially if
2: it goes up and it goes down, right? Exactly you have to have that thing. trust,
0: yeah. Is so so yeah. essential, um, and so that feeling of a clicking kind of just elevated saying from this oh maybe this will happen to like suddenly in my mind I really want this to happen actually I really want this deal to go through.
2: Hey and how did it evolve especially in those early days right the first talks you know the, just the informal talks where you didn't were there and then it become a little bit formal did you work on that time you know with an NDA because they're also a little more competitor right because they're also doing on the on the side the recruiting activities not so good as you did specifically for the developers how, but how did you handle that kind of uh, yeah, so stuff? Yeah. Yeah, pretty early on, also in the process. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And 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 uh, Xing is of course a listed company, right? Which is of course a different ball game to sell your company to, right? Because they have all compliance issues, etc. And you were uh, also as a founder. Um, uh, of course, your, your your colleague was a little bit more experienced. But how do you experience that, especially working with a big? structured, listed company and then being the small... I
0: mean, uh, Singar uh, do a great job, actually, of hiring. I think the, the people who work in the company are all um, extremely personable and I felt like a connection to most of them from from the very start. Um, I think, like, the due diligence process, though, was really, really intense. Um, so it
2: took four months, I read somewhere, right? Four months, yeah,
0: yeah exactly. Um, and so, you know, we went through everything in in the company and we had to, I think we probably had about three people full-time on it and then Kaya, probably 95% of his time me probably 70% of my time. Um, so that was a really intense period.
2: And you were 50 people, so 10% of the total company was working on that, right? And and, and the two uh, CEOs also, right? The two, uh, yeah.
0: So if that if that had a fallen apart, I think that would have been really detrimental for the company just because of the amount of um, resource that we actually invested into the due diligence process. And
2: uh, especially those, uh, those days of selling the company, right? At the same time, keeping the motivation, right, of your staff because you're really good at it, it's really important for you, and keeping the numbers up also, right? Because that's also important during that phase. How did you manage to do that?
0: Oh, it was really challenging as well because um, the NDA worked also that we couldn't even mention that they were in the process with us, so we yeah. couldn't mention it to most of our staff. No. Um,
1: uh, how did you involve your staff and key members about your decision?
0: Basically, the whole way through, we, we were saying, like, we are in clearly a very advanced stage in fundraising and... Um, You know we cannot be transparent about this and it's not also fun for us to not be transparent but this is a time where you have to trust us unfortunately and we can't reveal that much more and people respected that um and people really stepped up as well it was crazy to see um like people really stepping up in the marketing side of things to take over a lot of responsibilities which i would have normally managed Mm -hmm. a huge amount of effort on the sales side of people just stepping up um and I think that's, you know, that's the blood of startups, isn't it? You know, like mm. people st- stepping up, inexperienced people stepping up. And, and I think we saw so much of that during that time.
1: Yeah, so you framed it as fundraising. Were they surprised to, to hear that it was um, uh, a company takeover
0: take over? I'm not sure. I I've, I I can't fully remember the details of that time. Um, I know that definitely at some point prior to it actually been um science and everything we did actually bring in kind of the ma- the broader management um team um and so yeah I, actually, yeah, the, the, this also was one of my best memories, I think. Um, so on the day that we signed, you know, I think that probably it had leaked a little bit to some people. I'm not 100% sure. I think it was like, don't ask, don't tell kind of situation. <laughs> <laughs> um, but we, we went to Hamburg, you know, to sign the, the, the contracts. Um, and what was supposed to be, you know, a four-hour notary kind of signing turned into like an eight-hour one and so we had said to the team, like, okay, wait for us in the office. We, we'll be back around 5, and we'll tell you what's what's going on. And we were back around um, 9, nine. <laughs> 9 or 10, you know, something like that. Um, and we were, you know, racing in a taxi to get to the office. And as we were walking up the steps, we were on the top floor at that time could just hear the music like blaring and you know (laughs) already a big party going on um and 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 we walked in and, and and everyone just like suddenly was silent someone turned off the music um and so we just went up in front of the team and said actually guys this is this was an exit and we just yeah we just signed the papers to sell the company and it was just like everyone just screaming and such applause and and one of the best parties i think we've ever had and people randomly standing up on tables making speeches because you know we were only 45 50 people at that time and everyone had put their like heart into things and um that was a great day
1: Did some of them have stock options? Uh, What was that like?
0: Yeah, I mean, most of them did also have stock. um, So that was awesome um, that they got rewarded. Uh, One of my, another favorite memory was like calling one of our early developers. He was 19, I think, when he joined Honeypot. And he'd left maybe a year prior. um, And I called him and was like, we just exited, which means, you know, you're going to be getting some money soon. And, you know, he just, like, was so emotional and, and started saying, like, oh, this is going to be such a huge help for me and my family. And and then I started crying. Uh, <laughs> wow. um, yeah. So, like, those moments are just incredible when when, when exiting, you know.
2: Hey, and, and, and during that process, because you mentioned you were fundraising, did you also at that time actually fundraise? Because Xing at that time approached you. You had a few informal talks, but also formal. Did you in the same time... Talk with, indeed with VCs to have a double-sided approach also on that.
0: Yeah, we did. So we we at the, s- the time that um, Singh asked us if we would go into due diligence, and um, we also had um, one offer actually from a from a VC as well.
2: And how was how were the talks at that time with the VC, right? Because the first time you really had to. It was really draining, as you mentioned, right? And how was the second time talking yeah. to the VCs? Because then you had a different situation, right, as a company.
0: And I, I feel like I personally was more experienced. As I said, Kai, I think, was already very experienced. But um, it was much more positive, yeah. I think a lot more confidence and um, stronger you know, business metrics and everything like that as well.
2: And that was on your side, but especially also on the way that VC handled you, et cetera? Was it, was that it was diff- really positive as well. Yeah, was it, yeah, okay, yeah. it was. And, 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 and how did you do that? Did you, did you reach out to a lot of VCs? Did you just contact the, the ones you knew? C- can you tell something about how you handled that? Because I can imagine that at those early days with uh, Xing, it wasn't clear yet that that would result into a transaction right.
0: So, so Kaya led the, the whole fundraising process, but I, I remember that um, most of the people we engaged with at that time, the VCs, um, were VCs who had contacted us already throughout the last maybe two years. Um, and so we'd kind of built up a relationship with, with most of them um, and kind of had also done probably a bit more um, research in terms of talking to other founders and things like that about... Um, yeah, about them.
2: And were it only was it only German VCs you talked to was it also from other countries or, or US based or was it
0: I think uh, German and Dutch actually. The
2: German and Dutch yeah. probably given your because yeah, uh, we our presence in
0: Amsterdam, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah.
2: Okay. Okay, cool. Hey and and, and, and and during that process, right? Did did you two and handle that process fully yourself or did you get some help of other people, advisors, et cetera, or?
0: Yeah, we, we had an MA advisor, um, a advisor, Capital, who are based out of Hamburg, um, and they were so great. They really helped us structure a lot of what we needed to structure. Um, so we didn't actually engage them until, um, the, until we had the kind of term sheet for uh, Witzing, um, and then they kind of came in and, and began to help us.
2: To help with the DD mainly, right? Because normally, what what the advice that we often give to founders, right? If if you are being approached by a potential buyer of the company, uh, uh, if, if we even in Dutch in, in in Holland, an expression for us one buyer is no buyer. Sure, sure the shame you, you have it in in, in English, but um, we always advise that you always should have multiple buyers on the table, right? So that's why if a company approach you, you at that time hire an investment banker, or you approach yourself, or your VC, but you at that at that time you. I guess you didn't do that, right? So you were. We, you know. we
0: did actually have two other um, large HR tech strategics oh, okay. approach us at that time as well. Okay. Um, yeah. But to be honest, I'm not sure how serious they they were. They definitely weren't as serious as as thing. Yeah. 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 Okay. okay. Um, but that's actually very good advice, I think.
1: What What was the thing that uh, surprised you most about the whole process? You mentioned that the the diligence part took 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 a heck of a lot of time. Um, Were you prepared for that?
0: I don't think, no. I don't think structurally in the company we were prepared for that. And that would actually be my biggest advice to founders. It's um, like, how is your time gonna be compensated in the sense of like, who's taking over, what you normally do, how do you make sure decisions are unblocked, how does the company move forward? That kind of thing, I think, is super, super important to define um, because no matter what, even if you have it split, and like I said, Kaya was the one running fundraising, you're always going to be pulled into the process as as a founder, and, and you need to figure out, like, how does the company keep keep going? Um, and luckily we had a team who really pulled together, but um, I think we could have done a lot, uh, much, much better. And I will do it much better in the future.
1: Exiting a company is also a, a rational decision, but it's also an emotional one. How did you deal with uh, the emotions of selling your baby, basically?
0: Yeah, that was a really emotional um, decision, um, especially on the community side, because that was really my uh, my baby. Um and and the marketing team and community team, um, I love working with them. Um, I think it's the it's it's I think it's so much down to your personal motivation. You know, like if you. So I don't think I was particularly motivated by the money. You know, um, but I am motivated by um, legacy. I am motivated by users having a good experience. Um, I am motivated by building a good company for employees. Um, And I need to know that those things will be true post the time of me leaving. Um, And if they're not, then I wouldn't, if if I thought that they wouldn't be true, then I wouldn't have sold it. Mm -hmm. And that's, I think, how I deal with the emotions.
1: Evaluation. and normally in this segment we ask the analyst of P capital to do a rough estimate on what the sales price might be for a company but since Zing is publicly listed we already know what the deal terms were so they analyzed the deal to see if it was a good one
3: so let's dive deeper into the juicy part the exit valuation this time an easy job as the valuation of the exit has been publicly disclosed and consisted of two parts 1. A cash component of 21 million. 2. A quite large earnout option of 35 million based on revenue and EBITDA performance over the next three years. Meaning that if the company would hit these targets, the shareholders could earn 35 million more. While the press release didn't mention revenue, the annual report of Xing stated that Honeypot contributed 3.5 million in revenues over 2019. If we only consider the cash component, this would imply a six times sales multiple. So what do we think of this valuation? If you compare HoneyPot's sales multiple to their acquired Xing, we see a slight discount, as Xing was trading at a 7.8 sales multiple. Fun fact, if you compare the valuation of both Xing and Honeypot by dividing the valuation over the amount of members on their platforms, we see the following. Xing, having a market cap at the time of 1.7 billion and 16 million members, at a valuation price per member of 110 euros. Honeypot, with a valuation of 21 million and 100k members, at a price per member of 220, double the price per member compared to Xing. So that's a pretty large premium to pay for the members on the Honeypot platform. So what's our take? What was particularly interesting is the high earnout component. While 21 million already seems like a decent price, 35 million over the next three years is quite substantial. It's probably imposed by Xing due to the fact that unlike a SaaS business with login via software and contracts, it's a bit more uncertain whether the customers of Honeypot would indeed continuously return to the platform, especially after an exit. Xing most likely wants to pay a good price, but only if customers remain to be repeat buyers. The founders were probably willing to accept this because either 1. They were confident about the business, which I hope was the case or two because they were already happy with the base anyway and weren't even counting the upside. However, earnouts can be risky, as unfortunately the Honeypot case has proven to be, because the next year in 2020 COVID hit and caused a massive decline in their performance. While the annual report of Xing did not state the actual performance of Honeypots. the goodwill of Honeypots on the balance sheet went down from 24 million to 6.4 million. And the annual report also mentioned no earnout liability has been recognized for the acquisition of Honeypot, meaning they don't expect to pay anything for the earnouts in the future.
1: All right, ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Big Exit Show. We hope you enjoyed today's program. And if you did, please subscribe to our show through Spotify or your favorite podcast platform. If you have any feedback, please send a message to podcast at peak.capital. My name is Remi Gieling. And I'm Johan van Mil. And thanks again for listening. And hope you join us at the next episode.